most of the time people who are in the throes of addiction and who are down and who are um, not, not doing well with their mental health aren't really looking for access to treatment. They're usually looking for the basic necessities, which is housing, shelter, belonging. Hello, I'm Eric Anderson. The voice you just heard belongs to Jordan Mills. Jordan, along with Priscilla Johnstone and Chelsea Fulton, are the featured guests in Season 4, Episode 1 of YXC Underground. Having a safe place to call home is something most of us take for granted, but for some people in Saskatoon, it is a constant struggle finding a safe and affordable place to call home. In this episode of YXE Underground, we'll meet three people who are making a difference when it comes to helping the homeless find a home here in Saskatoon. Welcome to Season 4 of YXE Underground. I hope you had a wonderful and safe summer, and thank you for continuing to support the podcast. I am really excited to share this episode with you, as it's been a few months in the making. Throughout the past three seasons of the podcast, one of the themes that has popped up again and again has been the lack of safe and affordable homes here in Saskatoon. It connects to issues relating to mental health and addictions, and right now, affordable housing has become a federal election issue. What I struggled with was finding a way to reflect this important issue here on the podcast. Luckily, I received an email this summer from Sherry Benson. Sherry is the CEO of the United Way in Saskatoon and suggested that I do an episode on safe and affordable housing. And I was like, yes, yes, I should, Sherry Benson. So we met for lunch in July and came up with three people who we thought were making a difference in the city and could bring unique perspectives to the issue. Those three people were Jordan Mills, Chelsea Fulton, and Priscilla Johnstone. So let's start with Priscilla. Priscilla is the Homelessness Action Plan Manager with the Saskatoon Housing Initiatives Partnership. In her role, she works with community organizations to deliver funding for various housing projects. Priscilla also works directly with Saskatoon's homeless population and does so through an Indigenous lens, which she talks about in great depth in our conversation. Priscilla is incredibly passionate and kind and has ideas on how local organizations can come together to help those looking for a home. I met Priscilla in her office at Station 20 West and started our conversation by asking if she saw her life heading towards the path of working with homeless people. It wasn't something that I had set out in my career to um, move into, but now that I kind of look back at my life and all the other um, careers that I have had, because I've worked, um, you know, in the health region for 10 years, I've, I've worked with um, Ministry of Social Services for a few years, um, worked with the Needle Exchange Program, also worked in policing for about eight and a half years. Um, so when I moved back to Saskatoon, um, I was working in the health centre, um, so I worked in that field for about less than a year. Um, and I left that place and um, came to came to ship. Um, and I found that all of the experiences I've had in my past all um, served as a foundation of, of all the barriers, you know, and 
organizations that people, you know, access services to. So I found that I had, you know, a um, large variety of knowledge surrounding just um, those basic services that people can seek. At the same time, also my my own circumstances from my childhood, right, and seeking some of those supports. Um, so when I was a child, we we weren't um, very affluent. We were very um, poor, so we had to seek a lot of the services that were provided in the community. Um, so having that firsthand knowledge, you know, of needing supports and having those supports available. So... Um, I think that has afforded me, um, you know, like I'm, I'm very humble to be in this position, but I'm, I'm also very grateful and thankful that I could actually help and support others who have gone through similar things like myself when I was a, when I was a kid and, and a single parent and struggling. So, Does all that give you empathy in terms of what people are going through right now that are struggling to find a home? Oh, big time. Big time. I'm gonna be honest. There are sometimes I go home and I'm I'm so frustrated, um, just in regards to some of the barriers that some people face. Um, other times I feel so selfish. Sometimes in regards to things that I take for granted, that others may not have. So it it's extremely humbling. Um, but at the same time, I I I wear my heart on my sleeve sometimes and. Sometimes it, it really affects my compassion level and just kind of hits home a little bit too hard sometimes. But I, I think anybody who works in this sector at times faces the same problems or else we wouldn't be in this, in this sector in the first place, right? So I think you have to have a level of empathy and compassion and understanding to work. Um, and I think if you didn't, um, uh, it would be, I think, more harder for you. You mentioned some of the the challenges and problems that uh, people in our community are facing. Can you, Priscilla, just um, expand on that a little bit? What, when it comes to finding a, a safe and affordable home um, for for people in, in Saskatoon that are that are struggling, what are some of the what are some of the challenges that that, that they are facing? Um, I think one of the the biggest barriers that people are facing right now is the affordability. Right now, the aftermarket um, uh, costs for private um, dwellings, uh, the, the amount is anywhere from, you know, you can get a bachelor suite from anywhere from $700 up to $1,500. Um, the same time, you know, one bedrooms anywhere from 1000 upwards. So that cost is... Uh, is out of reach for most of the population. Um, the same time, Ministry of Social Services basic supports. Um, I think there has been some decreases in regards to the basic um, basic allowance for shelter. Um, so a lot of people are faced with um, uncertainty in regards to being able to provide secure or to even obtain secure housing. Um, the other piece is affordable housing units. Um, I don't think we have enough in the city. Um, at the same time, we're also dealing with pandemics. I mean, sorry, dealing with a pandemic. So it's extremely difficult in regards to social distancing guidelines. Um, there's also barriers in regards to accessing viewings or um, 
a, a lot of the application process for community, uh, sorry, for housing entities has gone to online platform platforms. So most of our homeless population don't have access to computer. They don't have a phone. Um, some of them don't have automatic banking or addresses. You know, all those basic things that we take for granted when an individual is trying to seek seek housing. Um, just to fill out the application, you need to have all that information in there, right? An address, a banking account, right? Um, landlord references. Most people don't have any of that. So all those, those little tiny barriers add up to more and more and more, and it's, it just makes it more difficult for our homeless population to have to jump through those hoops um, in order for them to secure housing. Once they do get secure housing, then you run into um, issues to maintain the home. Right, so then you run into issues such as you know if they have addiction uh, addiction issues, um, if they violate the terms of their lease agreements, and then they run into situations where they're evicted. So then the cycle just repeats itself over and over and over again. Um, so it's extremely difficult. I'm wondering then, Priscilla, where where do where do you and and the organization ship where, where do you come in in terms of 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 helping those that. Um, are looking for a home or kind of, like you said, in that cycle, where, where do you come in for that? Well, there's two pieces. So we come from the funding allocation piece in regards to support our community organizations. Um, and that's anywhere from um, service provision to capital expenditures. So there's a variety of, of supports in regards to that realm. We also have um, two housing case managers. Um, that work extensively with clients. So clients um, will work with our housing case managers to secure housing. So individuals that come in that face barriers in regards just to the application process, those housing case managers will work with them to complete the actual application and also will go with them for viewing um, apartments or houses. Um, and they will also support them uh, for a period up to three months so that there's um, level of supports and guidance for that individual. Um, that program, though, is very short. Um, the funding will be done at the end of the year. Um, but there are other programs in the community that also offer the same types of supports and services. Um, I think in Saskatoon we do extremely well in regards to providing supports um, Monday to Friday, we do very, very well, right? There's a lot of community organizations. We fall short a little bit in regards to our evening supports as well as our week weekend supports. I think if those certain community um, community supports, I think if they were to um, ramp up a little bit more, um, I think we would do very, very well in regards to providing the supports. We'll still run into issues of affordable housing units for individuals to be housed. Those will always be a problem. Um, there'll always be an issue in regards to affordable housing units because we just don't have enough. We need more housing stock. At the same time, there'll always be some problems in regards to uh, aftermarket housing and that affordability. So there'll still be a divide there, but I think um, moving forward, I think we could start bridging some of those gaps and work together more collectively um, so I think we're I think we're doing well so far, but in anything, um, you could always do better. It, it's nice to, to hear you say that that 
you know that it's that we are doing doing well because I think for sometimes I think you know that and and it's not just for for this issue but for other issues it's like oh my gosh like how how are things ever going to improve and and that kind of stuff but is it um is part of the battle just like like you said like sort of the mindset of of approaching an issue in terms of the right mindset and and thinking okay we've there's challenges obviously but um, this is what we're doing well, and then here's where we can improve. I agree. I th- I think if we have more conversations in regards to talking about the good things that we have done well, um, but always leaving with a perspective that we could always do better and then start strategically planning and moving forward on how to make that particular program or that initiative a little better. I think sometimes we we stumble on the pieces of the negative realms in regards to things that we haven't done thus far, and we get caught up in that realm that we don't pay attention to the successful things that we have done. Um, I think with the pandemic, um, everybody on the planet is facing some sort of um, adversity in regards to um, employment, housing, even just the family dynamics. So. I think we just need to collaborate more, communicate more, and be more action oriented in regards to planning and how can we actually fix the problem. Um, I think we've got a lot of wonderful, smart individuals that work within the housing sector or even in the community organizations that have been doing this type of work for a long, long time. Um, those would be our experts in regards to how do we change and how do we adapt, how do we move forward. Um, I just feel that we need more collaboration and consultation and getting on the same, the same team. Yeah. Um, Priscilla, from, from your perspective, is, is there one key piece of the puzzle that you would, you would like to see, like, um, our community really focus on, um, that could maybe make a big difference? That's a big question, I know. Yeah, that is a big, big (laughs) question. Um... I think I think from my perspective is if we if we had a clear objective and goal um, and if we all came together for the same collective and I think if we embraced um, needs and acknowledge barriers that do exist right I think that if we were very honest um, and goal oriented and, and focused on, on actually finding a solution or how to work within um, some of those barriers, um, I think we would do very well. I think at the same time, if we had um, more Indigenous consultation, um, I think if we also had more support um, and involvement with some of our... Um, um, you know, with our with our new immigrants and, and new people that come to the community. I think if we attack um, the solution with a variety of, of people, with a variety of skill sets, um, ethnicities, and we all come together for the same collective on how can we mitigate and move together to eradicate homelessness, um, I really think that we could we could come up with some wonderful solutions. Because we already do great work, like I said, in regards to the community. We all, like Saskatoon is, is such a 
wonderful place to live. It's got a great community. We all band together collectively. I think if we just tap into that strength and just expand on it, I think we'd do very well. Um, I was reading a really lovely article um, about you, and um, I, I I loved it. There was a part in the article that talked about how um, you are in your role right now, sort of viewing everything through an Indigenous lens, and I, I thought that was really interesting. And I, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about why why that is an important for you, not only for um, the issues that our community is facing, but just for you personally. Um, myself? Uh, from an Indigenous lens. So, um, myself growing up, we had lost, um, we lost our, our language. So, I, my mother didn't teach us our language. So, my mother had gone to residential school and my father had gone to day school. Um, so, there was a lot of cycles of um, historical trauma that impacted our family growing up. Um, so it caused a lot of barriers. So one thing that I learned um, during that time frame, kind of moving forward in my, in my life, is, is from an early age seeking supports from counselors and knowing that there's a way that you could talk with somebody if there's issues that you're being impacted with. So I, so I grew from that perspective, and then, you know, as I started reaching into my teens and adult years, um, I started doing a lot of um, inner work in regards to just who I was, right? Um, so I took the realm from the Western way in regards to therapy, counseling, supports, um, um, going through that realm, and then I went into school, went into addictions, counseling, so learned the disease model of addictions and just those cycles of um, addictions and, you know, learn behavior and stuff like that. Then as I started growing into my um, uh, 20s, 30s, then I started to learn more about my cultural ways and my cultural connections. And then during that time, um, I really started to realize that that cultural piece was always within me because of cultural teachings that I had from a child, right? Like my father was a trapper. Um, we lived on the land, um, but I didn't pay much attention to it when I was a kid growing up. I just thought it was reality, right? Um, but then as I started getting older, I was like, well, I already had those teachings, but I didn't even realize I had those teachings, if that makes sense. Um, and then as I, I started growing a little older, um, when I got into policing, actually, is when I really started to get back into my cultural perspective. Um, and I first took part in a Sundance uh, where it's uh, four days. You sacrifice um, yourself. You don't eat or drink anything for, for four days. And it's, it's like a spiritual uh, quest. Um, <clears throat> so I took part in that, and it was very empowering and, and just being in a position where you just um you all of your luxuries in regards to life right like your basic ability to go to the tap and get water right or go to the fridge and get some food right and um, all of those things that we kind of take for granted and you live without it for a period of time it really humbles you in regards to where you need to go right so i started growing from there and having more of that cultural perspective and then start looking at things and my spirituality from that cultural lens. So then coming back now and where I'm currently at, I realized that 
in order to work with our homeless population because according to our 2018 point in time count we've got about 85 percent of our homelessness population are of indigenous descent so what i learned from my own journey is if you don't have a strong connection to your identity or your culture or, or from from your place of uh, birth or environment right your childhood environment when you lose that you lose that connection of where you belong um, and I found myself that belonging and everything that I've done in my life is what held me together in regards to you know crises and things like that that I've I've experienced throughout my life so that's that perspective of having that indigenous lens is having that connection of where your roots are, where you come from, who your people are, um, and keeping that identity strong within yourself and moving forward. So some of our community organizations, I think it's um, Saskatoon Tribal Council, really talks about the perspective that the some of the homeless population of Indigenous descent, they, they talk to them in regards to my relatives. So it'd be the same perspective. Indigenous culture is, I mean, the Indigenous society is very small. Everybody knows of somebody um, or knows somebody's somebody. Um, so it's extremely connected. Um, and sometimes you learn a lot in regards to the community of where your people are from. Um, they may, you may not know them, but they will know your relatives. They'll know your extended family. Um, and in that brings in a sense of familiarity. Um, and then like, I go back as well in regards to some of the things I've learned about my, my family. When I was struggling with teenage years and stuff like that, you know, we all struggle in teenage years. Um, I had done some research at school um, in regards to my family. So I learned from my family lineage on my father's side that we're, we're actually related um, and direct descendants from Chief Mr. Wasis. And I didn't know that. But finding all of that history in regards to the chief um, and the Louis L rebellion um, and all of the things that were happening during the signing of treaty um, really instilled a huge level of pride within who I was and helped me realize that you have a choice in regards to your life and where you want to go but having that direct connection and understanding that was mind-blowing and that's what really helps me in regards to my understanding from that indigenous lens is that our indigenous people um, I know right now a lot of our indigenous people are struggling with addictions and, and traumas but we also have a strong beautiful culture that is there that we just haven't been able to tap into so I find that if we come from an indigenous lens and allow and open that ability for individuals to reconnect with where they come from that could be a stepping stone for them to to move forward in regards to the direction and, and change the way that their life is right or change a tra trajectory in some some way and I think of it from from my growth and the things that I've learned so 
um, we just, I think, as a society need to understand that there is strength, you know, in, in the culture and in identity. And every, every ethnicity has values and beliefs, right? Um, and I, and I'm not knocking anyone else's. I believe everyone has a right to believe in what they want, right? That's their own choice. Um, I just think right now, um, our indigenous population is, is struggling and we need to help and support the best way we can. Sorry, thank I blabbed a lot. No, no, <laughs> no. I was just about to thank you for that. That was a really thoughtful answer. And I appreciate you opening up about, about your past and, and how, how you, you have come to, to know things that that was that was a really wonderful answer I, i'm so curious too do you when, when you are when you are working with people then are you able to like you, do you share your own experiences oh absolutely yeah all the time all the time so i absolutely i share my experiences i mean i you know had a baby at a very young age um i lived on social assistance for a period of time i lived in um, affordable housing for a period of time as well um, so I understand as well the cycle is sometimes you can easily get wrapped up into it um, and you've got to have a lot of hard work and um, desire to change the way that the tra trajectory of your life is and, and make those changes and sometimes it's difficult um, it's it's very hard to break free from from a cycle or you know a way of doing things that you've learned your whole life it's extremely difficult um, so I've had a, you know, I've had to go through a lot of, um, hoops. I've had to go through a lot of struggles and sometimes I was by myself, um, having to go through that. But I found that each trial and tribulation I went through was kind of strength, uh, within me to kind of keep moving forward. So I share all that stuff with everyone that I come, that I come across and just say, you know, I've, I've been there where you are, when you're at, right. And I would share little tricks of the trades and things that I've done in order to overcome some of that stuff, right? I really try to encourage individuals to go back to school or to try and work. Um, I've even offered, you know, if they need some extra supports on how to mitigate some of those and, and how to seek full-time employment or how to get into school, I've asked them to come back and I try to help the best way that I can. So, but I mean, everybody does that in community, right? They all do a little, little bit here, a little bit there. And that's the stuff that I think we need to do a little bit more of in regards to our homeless population. Sometimes it's not that they need a handout, they just need a hand up. listening to season four episode one of yx underground my name is eric anderson in this episode we are looking at safe and affordable housing in saskatoon and speaking with people who are making a difference on this issue you can follow and listen to yxc underground on apple Podcasts, spotify or wherever you find your podcasts and you can also visit the website yxcunderground.com to hear every single episode don't forget to follow the podcast on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you like what you hear, please feel free to leave a glowing review. In 2014, Jordan Mills helped to start a really innovative housing initiative called Housing First. 
Jordan was seeing homeless people struggle to find a place to call home while dealing with addiction and mental health issues. He knew something had to change. The idea of Housing First is that instead of a homeless person climbing a staircase of addiction or mental health treatments before reaching the top and then receiving help to find a home, you flip it on its head and you work with the person to find a safe and affordable home first. Then you can begin addressing their mental health or addiction issues. It's a really unique program that continues to have a positive impact in our community and I was fortunate to sit down with Jordan to learn more about it. Jordan is the Director of Clinical Services at Saskatoon Crisis Intervention Services, and after spending five minutes with him, it's easy to feel how much he cares about helping people in our community. We met at Citizen Cafe for a coffee, and I started by asking how he goes about finding people a home. You know, going back to 2014, um, the United Way went out on a, a branch, and they they funded a Housing First program, and that was, that was with our organization, with Crisis. And it was, you know, it started very, very small. It was two or three people, really. Um, and, but Housing First was a different way of looking at the issue of homelessness. So I would say prior to that, homelessness was really seen, and this is nationally, you know, um, as the response to homelessness was more about maintaining it, right? So if a lot of organizations that meant well and, um, we're trying to do uh, alleviate the suffering of people who are homeless like for example often churches or faith groups um, you know would run things like soup kitchens and make lunches for people experiencing homelessness and sort of just make the experience of being homeless less um, less difficult and so all very um, good and well-intentioned things but it didn't it wasn't a response that could end homelessness right it wasn't a response that could um, change the the narrative to an assertive approach that we're going to say we're not going to maintain the issue anymore we're going to target it and try to end it so the concept of housing first came out with the mental health commission of canada um, and that research study that started back in um, 2010 i believe and the idea with housing first of course being instead of um, having someone ascend a staircase of uh, skills development and addictions treatment and mental health treatment before they could sort of graduate at a shelter and, and have a home is that we'd flip it right on its head and say the first thing we're going to do is we can recognize right now that you're homeless. Do you, would you like a safe place to live? Yes, I would. And then we would say, where would you like to live? Because we don't want to plunk you somewhere that you're not going to feel safe. And we're going to offer you some choice and try to try to figure out collaborate with you like where where is a place you want to actually be and that you can reassemble your life and so so that's a very different way of looking at the problem and that that is sort of the backbone of housing first and so housing first um, so we started that program with crisis in 2014 and like I say it's just really changed the way that we've provided the intervention the way we thought about the work when that because you're right it totally flips it on its head what what was um what was the response like when when that first started you know I think people were mixed I think people who had been doing the work for a long time in the industry um were skeptical and um you know concerned that you know maybe that their their way of working or their even their organizational uh, outcomes weren't going to be validated anymore. 
but we also had people that were excited. It was kind of a fun time, and you know, it, it, when we started out, it was it was a lot of fun. I remember I got to uh, be the team leader of the first housing first program in the province, and when we first first started, there was a small short period of time where we hadn't been sort of bombarded yet with referrals and intakes. Nobody really knew what we were up to, but we were out there starting. And so we literally had the opportunity to go into the center of the city and, you know, out on the street and, and very, you know, um, freely approach people that were clearly um, homeless and having a difficult time and, and simply say, it looks like you're, you're having a hard time. Would you like a place to live? And that experience was really, really fun, really, really cool. And if, you know, for someone like myself, who's a social worker and who, you know, works in a, I guess, a field where you don't always see results and outcomes, this was so much more tangible, so much more palatable and so much more concrete to understand, like, we're offering something that someone actually wants and we're going to do this thing together and it's, we're going to see some results. And so that was just really refreshing. So, like, what was going through your mind then when you, when you were approaching someone who obviously needed some help and, and you you just laid that offer out. What, what, what was that like? Um, kind of, you know, just like maybe a little bit exhilarating really because you know um, that it's going to be challenging. It's not going to be as simple as just here's a place to live and everything's done. And, and I knew that. But also, I think working in this field, there's so many, so, so, so many programs. And I, when I think about like health, for example, and government programs particularly, that are offering help with an end game of sort of treatment, right? And so, you know, the question is often to to um, service users, do you want help um, accessing medications or psychiatry, for example, or um, on the path to um, a treatment center or something like that for your substance use issues? And so to be able to offer something um, that people actually wanted was really, really, really rewarding because most of the time people who are in the throes of addiction and who are down and who are um, not, not doing well with their mental health aren't really looking for access to treatment. They're usually looking for the basic necessities, which is housing, shelter, belonging, um, intimacy with people, other people, relationships, and connecting with their family, and you know, getting those basic needs met, and then thinking about, well, maybe Maybe it's time to look at my methamphetamine use habits or whatever it is. But so I, I, we stick to that. I mean, I still think that that's the best way to offer services is what is it that you really want? And let's collaborate on that. And when they, I mean, most of the time with the, of course, the clientele that we're working with and the, the population that we target, most of the time, the biggest piece, the most obvious piece is I want a safe place to be and I want to pick where that's going to be. I don't want you to plot me in some group home or some, you know, dump on the, near the airport where I'm not near my resources or my pharmacy or whatever I need. I want to pick where I want to live. And so to be able to do that, um, that's just such a, such a powerful way to start the work. I, I, 
I'm just thinking about where I work at Sherbrooke. Um, we, we follow something called the Eden Alternative Philosophy of Care. And within that, we have seven domains of, of well-being when it comes to our residents that live there. And two of them are autonomy and security. Um, and that that just links perfectly with that. Like people, people want that, don't they? Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, I, I find that when people, the more choice and more autonomy that they have, the more that they're driving their own ambition, their own sort of quote-unquote care plan, I guess if you could call it, and you're going to see outcomes when, when, when the individual's driving their own um, goals, right? It's what they want. And so really in this work, it's, it's a reframing of we're not offering um, services with an end game of what the system wants for them. It's, it's really getting rid of that concept and saying, what is it you want? And we're here to collaborate with you on your terms about how we're going to walk together and try and support you in that. That's, that's so interesting. You, you mentioned um, when, when it first launched, there was that, that brief period where you, you weren't bombarded with referrals and, and you had the time. I, I'm curious, how, how has the program developed now, I, I guess that's seven years later? How, how has it grown? Oh, it's growing in so many ways, and it's 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 exciting. Honestly, it's it's um it's been such a uh, a good thing for the United Way to have invested in because it's it's really the way I see it is it's really uh, a tried and true program that we've done to fidelity. And you know, some other things I have to credit the United Way for is that when we started going, like when we got this thing going, they were really good to make sure that they had the right professionals and leaders come in um, to help us set up you know so Ian DeYoung and Samson Barris were both part of our setup who are um, some of the really the sort of biggest leaders in in this work over the last 10 years and and so when I say fidelity to the model like it there's a lot to this work it's not just you know big hearts and we're gonna try and house people it it really is a clinical program it's it's very it takes a lot of skilled work, really, really skilled people to do this. And so, and it also takes a framework that you have to adhere to. You can't, you can't have slippage or it doesn't work. And so um, we, we had the benefit of, the, with the support of the United Way to um, really uh, make sure that we launched it um, in a way that adhered to fidelity. And that's been so, so important to, um, how we work and how we keep working and and um, to the development and the evolution of what we've done. So I think when I mentioned we started with three people, including our team leader, um, after a, a couple of weeks the word got out and within two weeks we had close to a hundred referrals and I had these pile of a hundred referrals sitting on my desk and every one of them was a legitimate referral we could have taken. And so I, I quickly realized at how overwhelmed the system was and, and the fact that we had clearly over 100 people that had um, complicated uh, health and mental health issues and, and chronic homelessness. And, and so all we could do was try to sift through and, and stick to the principle that we would try and find the most vulnerable and we have a triage tool that we're, you know, that we do um, reference to try and figure out the comorbid factors that would make their acuity um, more complicated and sort of the hardest to house, hardest to engage. And that fit with the service delivery that we were already doing. And so that's what we stuck with. And so we would, we would pick those out of the pile. Um, 
you know, and sometimes that would even involve scouring our database and stuff to see like who was the highest user of crisis services and police services and, and, and you know, looking at those things as well to see like what kind of sort of um, chaos and were they up to in the community and, and um, so, so that's how we've, we've sort of targeted who we work with and we've kept with that but over the years we were we were confronted with because prior to housing first we were providing service um, case management service sort of this intensive service coordination for people um, primarily who had severe and persistent mental illness so um, a very uh, high in, highly involved psychiatric model um, that that had a lot of linkages with psychiatry and for people like sub, where substance abuse was severe and, and present as well and homelessness for sure but like really it was it was more about targeting the mental health end of things and so what was different about this is that we now had a stream of service to add on housing first um, that was targeting individuals where the primary presenting issue was chronic homelessness and we worked backwards from there and so it, it opened us up to a different sort of cohort of people that we hadn't um, had as much exposure to prior. And one of those um, areas is individuals that presented with um, alcohol use disorder, severe alcohol use disorder. And it was often individuals we were finding um, who were in their usually sort of late 40s, early 50s, sometimes as, as old as 60. Um, often indigenous who had um, been through some residential school experiences or had been um, you know, living with the consequences of residential schools and severe histories of trauma, like severe, severe histories of trauma and had been drinking non-palatable alcohol like hand sanitizer and stuff like that for uh, many, many years. And a lot of these individuals were well known to the community in terms of using, um, you know, um, resources like the Friendship Inn and um, sometimes the detox unit, the police were very well aware of them. But um, it, there wasn't a fit for them necessarily in terms of housing because the, the need to continue to drink sort of precluded the conditions of most housing programs, including even being in the shelters. And so these individuals were high, high users of like emergency departments. Um, in inpatient kind of care, lots of seizures, it, you know, very, very dangerous withdrawal stuff with alcohol use like that. And we were finding that our approach, which was at the time primarily called scattered site housing, which is when you offer someone market rental housing in the community, they sort of have a choice of where they want to live and we support them intensively through their independent living in the market. Well, we were trying that and we weren't having a ton of success with this particular cohort in that model. And I think for a number of reasons, but I actually think it was in some ways more dangerous because where there may have been eyes laid on them, um, you know, if there was a seizure or something, now we were finding that there was less eyes on them because they had their own place. Um, they often weren't showing that they were making use of stuff like their kitchen and groceries in a way that was you know, actually nourishing them. Um, and so, and they were also used to living communally. That's how, um, that's how they keep safe, right? And that's, that was their social network. And so, you know, that doesn't work well in the concept of market rental housing where people want you to be quiet and they want tenants to sort of, 
you know, go in and out of the hallway quickly and not make too much noise. While we were seeing groups of, you know, nine or ten people <laughs> coming together to live in these um, units and and all the stuff that came with that. And so we weren't we weren't happy. We were confronted. We weren't happy with the the way our service model was serving that particular demographic. Outside of that, it was working wonders. You know, particularly for people who had um, primarily um, mental health problems, and we were making the proper linkages with psychiatry and medications and helping them along their way that way. But this, this was different. So the response to that was we knew we needed to do something different. We took advantage of some um, extra money that had come at the time through uh, the reaching home uh, through the feds at that time. And we partnered with the Lighthouse on something very intentional to do managed alcohol. So we would, we would try something very very new to the province. It was the first time it was done here and of course in Saskatchewan with the history of prohibition everything it was a little bit I think it raised some eyebrows but we decided we wanted to go out and and do this very different thing that would meet the need and that if we couldn't do that we weren't going to do it at all because we wanted to do something that we knew was actually gonna meet, meet the needs of this population and so we started a pilot where we were offering um, beverage alcohol um, to individuals who presented with this criteria and in turn they would of course they would have a safe place to live they would have their own unit they would have a communal space to socialize with each other and we would have a regulated dose of beverage alcohol that was safer than some of the stuff they were getting on the street like hand sanitizer mouthwash and um, we would work on them with their choice of what they wanted to drink and all of these things and of course they were getting nursing care and oversight from a nurse practitioner um, and lots and lots of support and care and resources. And so we, we, we did this and it was very highly, highly successful. We tracked service use data and health outcomes and everyone was really happy with it that was involved. And so we expanded that to, which is now a nine bed managed alcohol program here in the city. And so that is an example of one of the ways that we've evolved um, our scattered site model to include this other stream of, I guess it'd be congregate, managed alcohol. Um, and so really I think going back to the idea that because the United Way has kept with us and they've um, been confident in our funding and sort of let us have autonomy over how we're doing this and they trust that we know what we're seeing, it's sort of, we're sort of doing research in motion and we're con continually refining, refining, refining. Um, and because they've allowed us to do that, they've now got this infrastructure that we built um, in the city and and really leading the way in in harm reduction housing yeah there that is that is so interesting and I'm, I'm wondering Jordan like when you when you were seeing things that you know with with the really challenging uh, you know cases with people that were presenting really big challenges and you realized um, okay we, we need to do something different as um, as a leader, as someone who's really involved and, and obviously passionate about this, is it um, is it disheartening, or do you view it as like okay, like let's just reset and go down a different path? Like what 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 do you feel as individually, like as as a person? How do you feel? Yeah, absolutely, not disheartened at all. It's I think it's just we have to come to terms with that as anybody that runs programming is that we're not gonna do one thing and serve everybody's needs and and we can't stick so tightly to that we we have to build on what works and continually expand and evolve you know like one of the issues with 
the programs that we have now in Saskatoon is that they're designed um, either for the system, for the needs of the system, or for the, the needs of the program or the staffing. And, and we have to look at it in a different way. We have to say, you know, what are the actual needs of the people out there and what they want? And there, you know, when you look at homelessness, there are so many different reasons why someone's become homeless. So, so, so many. You can't just lump them all together. And so if there's 400 people that are homeless in the city, it may be that there are 359 different responses to that that we have to come up with, you know. And so we have to think more loosely uh, about that. When we're developing programs and when we're doing this work, it needs to be much more malleable and much more responsive. And, and even what works, you know, now might not work in five years or be as relevant. And we have to be okay with that and just look at the facts like is it working are we getting outcomes are people staying housed or you know are we getting them into a unit and two weeks later they're out but we checked the box that they were housed and it meets everybody's statistical criteria and we move on you know sort of glazing over the fact that that person's back on the street and worse than ever you know so we have to we we have to look at those things and just be honest about it you, you really have to stay on your toes don't you yeah <laughs> yeah you do. um do you, Jordan, do you ever find this work um, daunting or overwhelming or are, are you inspired? I, I, I think I know the answer to this, but like, do you ever have those days? You know, I think what, what is daunting some days is um, it's more the systems and the struggle with trying to maintain funding and stuff like that than... <coughs> the work. The work is always so inspiring. The work is, how could it not be, right? Like, it, it, it's, it's more the struggle with, um, you, you work so hard to offer something and it's meeting need and the data looks good and everything looks good and, and there's so much momentum that goes into that. And then in six months down the road, you're on the chopping block, um, you know, with some department or another in terms of what they want to fund and the, the criteria has changed or something and so you're back to the drawing block about trying to somehow prove that what you've done is is working and and all of that kind of stuff I think is what's more discouraging and more daunting but but not the work you love the work yeah <laughs> um, you, you've been very generous with your time. I, before I let you go, though, um, and sort of maybe building on that, I'm wondering if, if in the, in whether it's the past few years or looking back on your career, is, is, there, is there a story, is there a person um, that stands out to you that, um, you know, you think in your mind that, you know, it, it worked out, the work we were doing was, was successful? Um, is, is there someone that comes to mind? Yeah, I mean... There's so many, and I think the people that come to mind for me aren't the ones that are the sort of shining light stories where somebody goes from sort of rags to riches or whatever, where they, you know, were down in the dumps and now they're working and they're going to rider games and all this kind of stuff. Those, once in a while, those stories do come about and they're wonderful. Trust me, I mean, when you see them, it, it's wonderful. But I'm much more of a guy for measuring... Um, the really small incremental wins that sometimes I think other people would would look at me and say how how is that a win but it's it's when you're confronted with the immensity of someone's um, 
trauma and what they've been through. And, and you know that the, ch the challenge here is it's life or death. It's really life or death. And what we might actually be doing in those times is um, helping the person have dignity in their last days and, and to be comfortable and to do the best with what we can. And it's not going to be some stellar story where they, you know, get a job and they just get married after and all this kind of stuff. It's, it's much more subtle than that. And those, those are the wins that I am, those are closest to my heart, those ones. This is episode one, season four of YXC Underground. My name is Eric Anderson, and we are speaking with community leaders who are making a difference when it comes to safe and affordable housing. If you like what you've heard so far, feel free to give the podcast a five-star review and share the episode with your friends. Final guest in this episode is someone who did not sleep a wink before our interview because of nerves, but I have to say, she did an amazing job. Her name is Chelsea Fulton. She is the Pride Home Manager for Out Saskatoon, and I love that she wears her heart on her sleeve. Pride Home is a house that provides 2S LGBTQ youth between the ages of 16 and 21 a safe place to live, open and free lives here in Saskatoon. It opened five years ago, and it is serving an important role in the community. An Out Saskatoon survey showed that 30% of youth in its youth programs have been homeless or without secure housing at some point in their lives. Chelsea was kind enough to meet me at Out Saskatoon's offices and explain that she had been in the role since February of this year. You will quickly realize how much this job means to Chelsea, a job she calls a beautiful gift. I started our conversation by asking Chelsea why Pride Home was created back in 2017. From my understanding, um, Pride Home was made because there was, and they, um, out Saskatoon, saw the need for um, the youth to have this home, a safe place. Um, you know, queer youth and specifically Indigenous two-spirit youth are overrepresented in, in homelessness and foster systems, group homes, all of it. Um, and there was, and they needed a safe space. So there was Rainbow Coffee, one of our youth um, support groups, and that um, Out Saskatoon has, <clears throat> they, um, they saw that youth were staying a little bit later and after, and it was always a discussion that was brought up, so I think that's where it all stemmed from, and it was one of the first in, in, of its kind, right? Now, we do have, like, Lulu's Lodge as well, um, but we definitely need more, yeah. Yeah. more safe spaces for our, um, our queer and sexually and gender diverse youth and it's not just youth it's also you know older adults and that middle ground like it just there needs to be more safe spaces within housing and group homes and all of it um i i want to get into specifically in a minute in terms of what makes um you know queer youth in in saskatoon kind of maybe more vulnerable where they would need a service like this but can you chelsea just take a, a little bit of time to explain like what what are the services available at the home? Um, and you know, what, what, um, what, what is there that, that, that helps people so much? Um, for services, we, you know, at, um, at Pride Home, we do, we do a lot. 
We do a lot of hard work. I, um, you know, I'm the Pride Home Manager and I do have a wonderful team that um, I work along beside. Um, I do have <clears throat> two primary staff in the house, um, Sarah and Kiara. They are absolutely divine and great. Um, and then I have two other uh, like casual staff that comes in like once or twice a week. Uh, Sunny and Megan and they are absolutely amazing and um, in terms of what we do at the house is like what don't we do right <laughs> um, we do have a lot of like youth coming in I have a wait list we have a full house right now um, we do a lot of peer support a lot of navigating systems um, but the main goal is you know take that that one barrier away from them that all uh, all the queer youth have is you know the homelessness are, no, are not a safe space to be themselves or we're a space that they're not celebrated so we we give them that um and you know like with most of the the things within pride home and with queer youth in general you know it's all intersectional and it's there's a lot of things if you can take one of it away for safe housing we can start working on some of the other issues that is needed in terms of support, whether it's mental, physical, emotional, or spiritual. That's so interesting because I, I found um, in doing this podcast for the last, I guess, three or four years now, um, when it, especially in speaking with social workers, because I've been lucky to speak with several throughout the podcast, um, you know, there, there are lots of challenges out there in our community um, that people are facing, and yet so much of it, at the core of it, is, is having a, a safe place to live and a safe place to call home. And I think that's something that so many of us take, I know for myself, I certainly take that for granted. And yet it's not realistic for a lot of people, is it? And not at all. And like, you know, it's, it's tough. Like from my own experience too, it was hard to, you know, someone that experienced homelessness and on the risk of experiencing homelessness and like as a youth and trying to figure out my own, like I can empathize with them and know exactly where they're at. So <clears throat> and creating this and continuing on this safe space for um, our queer youth is just it's just amazing and yeah. seeing them flourish like I've been there since February <clears throat> and some of my kids have you know got jobs and like are excelling within like the, the, the realms that they needed to like it's just it's it's amazing to watch. I always like tell my, I always tell my sister, yeah, I'm like a mother of like eight. <laughs> That's basically what I am, a mother of eight. <laughs> yeah. And and you enjoy that? I do. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's teenagers, so it does have its times. <laughs> it does have its times where you know some days I'm like, oh, you know what? I'm going to bed. <laughs> I can't do this. <laughs> but you know, it's waking up every day and. Showing them that, you know, that there is somebody there that's standing behind them, that's standing with them, willing to walk through all of those tough conversations, those tough emotions, you know, because, and they're really inspiring because some of them are going through puberty. Some of them are going through life-changing, life-changing um, moments. And it's just, it's, it's wild to me that they just like, they're so woke at that age. I didn't. I didn't know half of the stuff that they do now. Like every day, they as much as I teach them, they teach teach me. So what what ages are like? It, so you you mentioned you have a full house. How, how many is in a full house? Um, so Pride Home has six rooms in it. Each room has like its own little. It's like its own little suite, right? Because it's a supported independent living home. 
Um, and then the, we also have a basement suite where it's, um, I hate saying this, but I like to say the next chapter of youth who kind of, um, like, I hate this phrase, but age out, um, can, that still need a little bit more support can live there until they're ready to um, go on to the next venture. Um, so yeah, I have eight kids right now. You, you mentioned that there's a wait list to get into the home. What, how, how does, how does a, a person, you know, become a resident of Pride Home? <sighs> wait list. It's so sad. Um, yeah, I do have a wait list. I always have a wait list. It is very um, long. Um, we do have like a process, like uh, you have to fill out an application, get referrals, um, but it's all through the application process. I do go through them. I try to contact um, people, uh, the youth that are on the wait list just to see if they still need housing. Um, with us being fully housed right now, it's kind of kind of a tough situation. Um, <clears throat> but it's just, for me, it's, you know, like I have people that are very, very high needs, some that are um, just needed some space. And you know, it's hard, it's hard to, like it's hard to make those decisions. I have to make sure because like in each application, it gives a little bio about like your situation, what is happening. Um, and you know, you have, you have high, high, high needs, some that are medium and some that are low, and it's not, not easy decisions to make. So when, when you, and, and, and again, I, I know there's, there's obviously privacy things here, Chelsea, but in terms of like when you say high needs and medium needs, like what, what do you mean by that? Um, so for, for me, um, for high needs, it's like someone who's homeless or at the risk of being experiencing homelessness. Um, those are the highest needs because I obviously I don't want any of the youth like outside or not being properly fed or not being like house or being safe because it is a scary a scary place out there right um, and like medium or needs are for me is you know like if they do have a home for right now so if it's emergency houses I emer emergency housing is what kind of what I what I have to like go basis off and then housing. Um, but I also like, you know, with privacy reasons and like the story behind everything, like it, it, it's, yeah, it's finding that balance and trying to make sure that it, it is fairly, fairly, um, each youth is fairly chosen. Yeah. These are hard decisions. Uh, yes. We need more, more pride homes. <laughs> Yeah, it would definitely be nice to have more pride homes, but you know, um, we're doing the best that we can with what we have. And I think that making this, having this home is cha like changing a lot of lives for a lot of youth. Um, and it is a long-term home uh, and it is a voluntary home. Like it's not like you have to be here. So you come in voluntarily. Um, yeah, and just. And, and, and because the people, they, they, they still have to pay rent, correct? And yeah, correct. Yeah. Yeah. So rent is, rent, rent is, it's affordable. Um, it's about, you know, you have to pay your rent and then you also have to, since it is like a, you have roommates in the house, you do have to pay a portion of the utilities. So rent's about, about 500 bucks. And then, um, rent is like one sixth of the utilities. Um, but yeah, we do like programming and like 
groceries and stuff like that. Um, it's all, we do like meal plans. Sometimes they don't work. <laughs> can, can you tell me about some of the programming that you do? Oh, programming. Let me tell you, sometimes it's a struggle. <laughs> um, I also like to take a holistic approach to this. So like when I said at my practicum that I did bring the medicine wheel into it with making sure that we are reaching every single realm to um, fulfill each of our, our beings, so mental, physical, emotional, and spiritual. I like to do that within the house too. So like we do fun things, but we also like to try to do educational things. Um, life skills. Okay, so you're you're roll, you're rolling your eyes a bit there. So it, it is it hard because, like you said, they're they're teenagers. They're so grown up. Like, it, it, do you find that sometimes maybe different kids are are res, more receptive than others, perhaps? Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah, a hundred percent. You know, and you know, it's a lot different that we do live in a society that's very like digital, right? So like they do like to play a lot of games and like. There's different, different approaches that we've been trying. So programming can go from, you know, um, we had to write it out, so like write your feelings, um, do poetry, um, we have art nights, we um, garden, but it's looking, we need to like harvest a garden. <laughs> um, <clears throat> we have like outings, like uh, we go bowling or to the pool. We do a lot, a lot of beach days and hiking, like through the summer. Um, a lot of art, all of, a lot of art, all of my, yeah. all my kids are very, very talented. Um, so it's really nice and game nights and, you know, we try to make it like a familiar structure within the house because, you know, like a lot of, a lot of youth who go through some of the things that, um, you know, other youth haven't, um, have been robbed of that kind of support or have been robbed of that familiar structure that we, <clears throat> we in the house call each other, well, the staff call each other aunties. So, you know, we're like, hey, like, auntie, blah, blah, but we, like, try to make sure that we do um, supper every night. We try to get the youth to be involved with that. Um, we do, like, family barbecues, and, like, we'll all get together and just cook and eat and laugh. So we try to bring some of that structure in there, so... Um. I was just thinking of so many things as you were explaining that in terms of, of I think perhaps in my mind too, before speaking with you, I maybe had this, you know, idealized version of what life was like in the home. But I think you paint a very realistic picture in terms of like, it's not all sunshine and lollipops. Like it's, it's, it's hard work. But then I also got to thinking too, you were saying that, you know, the, the situations, the backgrounds these kids have been through, um, in their lives, like that, that, I feel sad when I when I hear that because it's I I would like to think that we're better than that in in 2021 and yet there's still so many challenges on that front isn't there in terms of being a, a young queer youth in Saskatoon. Oh, 100. Um, percent My my youth still experience a lot of um, racism and homophobia and transphobia. Um, Any time that they go out, you know, um, and it is sad and like you know like. Pride home, yes, it's happy. We have our, just like any other any other family structure, any other family, we have our hard days, our boring days, our happy days. Um, you know, and we do a lot of peer support and it is a lot of, of talking and, um, you know, it's just, it, it's tough for, for some of them sometimes with having to, you know, navigate through 
coming to a new home, figuring out who you are, um, but then also, you know, having such, such support and love that they are not used to or that it's kind of like, it's like, it's, it's foreign to them, right? Um, being celebrated and just being, letting, like, having the space to be who they are, it's kind of, it's kind of shocking for some of them. And then, you know, sometimes leaving those spaces is a little shocking, a little hurtful as well, too, because it's not always like that. How, how do you know, Chelsea, that you're, you're making a difference um, in, in these kids' lives? Like, how, are, are there specific moments that you can think of where you've seen, okay, like I'm getting through to this person, or I see that us aunties are having an impact? Um, I see that all the time. I see it all the time. And in, you know, some of the ways that they joke around sometimes when, you know, um, the progress that they make from when they start, you know, I keep track of a lot of, a lot of like situations and, um, the growth that they've done and, um, how they become independent is the ultimate goal, right? Like, yes, I can give you the tools and I can walk beside you, but like, can you make these decisions to do that? Um, and, you know, like seeking out extra support when needed, um, going to school, getting a job, being able to like sit down with them and have conversations about, you know, past traumas or memories and like, being like getting past that comfort zone because let me tell you when I first came in here they were not not very like hey how's it going blah, blah. like it took me a couple months to like actually like sit down and joke around with them and have conversations and you know I what, what was that like for you those first few months when they, when they weren't as hey Chelsea how's it going <laughs> um you know I am you know, I was very nervous to do this and like, I, as probably a lot of people are, but um, this is like my, my 40% and usually I'm very outgoing and like to talk. So like I knew that going in the house um, that I had to bring that down too. So like I would match a lot of their energies and I'd be like, hey, like how's it going? I'm like, how's school? Blah, blah. And then until I got to like sit there and I would work like more of the night so I can actually like sit there and talk with them and like get to know them a little bit. Um, so it was, it was a challenge. Um, I was trying to find that balance of, you know, like I'm still the private home manager, but like also like, who are you? And, um, yeah, like let's make this connection. Um, it was, it was nice. So it was definitely a lot of wins when, um, one of my, one of the tougher youth, I would like, for me, I would always be like, okay, like I would go say good night before I left and I'd be like, good night, I love you. And they wouldn't say it back for a while and I'm like, that's okay, that's okay. And then when they start saying back, I'm like, yes, yes. <laughs> this has been episode one, season four of YXE Underground. My name is Eric Anderson. I host, produce and edit this local independent podcast. My thanks to Chelsea Fulton, Jordan Mills and Priscilla Johnstone for being such wonderful guests on the podcast. It really was great meeting and learning from each of you. I also want to thank Sherry Benson for her help in making this episode possible. You can follow and listen to YXE Underground on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Don't forget to leave a review of the podcast if you like what you heard. 
You can find YXE Underground on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, which is where you'll see some lovely photos of Chelsea, Jordan, and Priscilla taken by local photographer and wonderful human being, Molly Shikoski. Thank you so much for your help in this episode, Molly. I also want to thank Danger Dynamite for their help with the website and my cousin, Andrew Dixon, for creating the theme music for the podcast. Before I go, I would like to acknowledge that these interviews were done on Treaty 6 territory and the traditional homeland of the Métis. YXE Underground is a production of the Salt Hammer Production Company. My name is Eric Anderson. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you soon, Saskatoon.